Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined by Kevin Cancun Hume. How's it going today, Kevin? <laughs> it certainly feels a little bit Cancun y out in the city. It's kind of warm today. It's warming up a little bit. It's warming up. Well, um, we took a whole week off last week, and what a week it was. Uh, it wasn't warm in most of the rest of the country. The bulk of the United States was hit by a continental ice storm, the brunt of which seriously hammered Texas. And I'm glad to say, Kevin, it proved through its dangerously frigid conditions, which had some Texans burning furniture to stay warm, that global warming is a hoax. I mean, there's <laughs> there's snow, so <laughs> that's a wrap. Checkmate, uh, libs. Checkmate. Yep. yep. But seriously, the, the Texas thing was bad. I mean, I don't want to make light of people's suffering in Texas. Um, and I do hope that it does demonstrate one thing, um, whether people believe in climate change or not. I hope that it gets people thinking uh, in that purpling state about this philosophy of rugged individualism that undergirds conservatism in this country and how it has been allowed to get completely out of control. It's gone to a cartoonish extreme. I'm talking like contrarian freshman philosophy major who just got their hands on a copy of Atlas Shrugged Extreme. So um, back in the little history lesson here, back in the 2000s, Texas seriously deregulated its energy market. It was um, supposed to make things cheaper and give consumers more choice. But what it did uh, for sure is it paved the way for what happened last week in the Lone Star State when unregulated energy providers charge some of their customers upwards of 500 bucks a day. Five bills a day, dude. Price gouging. So fucked up. What's your energy bill for the month? It's not even that. Uh, no. Like a really bad month. I think the worst I've ever seen it uh, was when I was living at the house that I grew up in last year. It was probably like maybe $300 in the middle of winter because we ran the heater. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. For a month. Yeah. For a month. I mean, like, say what you will about PG&E. Those guys fuck up all the time. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, they start natural disasters, um, but <laughs> they don't necessarily, like, price gouge because of them. That would yeah. be, like, the ultimate Captain Planet villain scheme. <laughs> it's just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause a, I'm gonna cause a blizzard, and then I'm going to charge you money Make for you it. Make you pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can. Because that's what John Wayne would do. Because that's what John Galt <laughs> would do. Uh, that's enterprising. You got to capitalize. Uh, and if you're suffering yeah. because of it, well, you're a sucker. Like the now former mayor of Colorado City wrote in a Facebook post. Did you see that? Colorado City, Texas? No, I didn't see this. Quote, no one owes you or your family anything nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this, exclamation point. At this point, like, has he been hacked, I'm thinking? Sink or swim, it's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. That's all caps right there, N-O-T-H-I-N-G. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. <sighs> Jesus, dude, like... That's not a handout. And, and the fact that helping people in the middle of a natural disaster seems like a handout is the epitome of what's wrong in this country. Anyway, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, 
about 60% of Texans who get their power from these private retail providers um, consistently pay more than other Texans who get their energy from traditional government-regulated utilities. So um, like I was saying, all that legislation in the early 2000s paved the way for, you know, these private utilities to do like this kind of like flex pricing thing where they change the price depending on the stress on the power grid. And the idea was you could shop around and there'd be a bunch of them and, you know, you'd get to pick the best one, but um, not how it seems to be working out. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not like you can just pick the right one in the middle of a crisis where you don't have any fucking power. Yeah. Or it's not like you can know precisely which one is going to be speaking of captain planet villain esque. Like I saw, so in that wall street journal, I just, uh, article I just cited, there was like a, there was a screen, a, a, a photograph of a guy holding his phone. He had his like app up and uh, the name of the power company was called gritty. Like, like not with T's, but like, like typical millennial bullshit, man. Like, well, you got to put a Y at the end of everything, guys. Oh, it just sounds, yeah. It just sounds like a terrible app or something. Yeah. Or like a mascot or something. Gritty, (laughs) gritty, the power of, I don't even know. (laughs) I don't want people who say the word, uh, who would, who would say the word adulting running my, my, my power plan, you know? (laughs) Like I, I, oh gosh, I'm guilty of saying that sometimes. I also say doggo. <sighs> anyway, so yeah, the Wall Street Journal: sixty percent of Texans who get their power from these private retail providers consistently pay more than other Texans who get their energy from traditional government-regulated utilities, like like the geniuses at PG&E. Um, so, so much for government getting in the way of efficiency and low prices. And so what I'm getting at here is this strain of Ayn Randy, Ayn, Ayn Randian individualism. I think there's another word for it, uh, by the way, solipsism. It's great so long as the icy hammer of Thor isn't raining blows down upon you. You know, like when, 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 that, when that happens, when the winter storm equivalent of Led Zeppelin's immigrant song sweeps in, well, most of us, you know, for, for those of us not in Ted Cruz's tax bracket, mm-hmm. who can't afford to just catch a flight to Cancun when the going gets tough, rugged individualism at that point starts to look a lot less appealing and mutual aid networks start springing up. Um, I've been seeing headlines about this in Texas, neighbors helping neighbors. Um, I'm sure you've seen these uplifting stories, right, Kevin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neighbors helping neighbors. Great. Um, and I know that I feel like some people, they're going to, you know, Ted Cruz, back to my favorite punching bag, he's going to spin this like, you know, that's a, that's a uniquely American cowboy trait. But there's another word for that, too. It's collectivism as opposed to individualism. Um, and there's another word yet that we sometimes use to describe that kind of community-centered practice, where those who have the means help those who do not, where a rising tide raises all ships. I'm talking, of course, about the scourge of socialism. Or as Brigadier, <laughs> or as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper in uh, Doctor Strangelove said, the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our bodily fluids. <laughs> That's why I only drink oh, distilled that, rainwater, Kevin. That dastardly socialism rearing its head again. I know, and like, well, that's the thing. Like, it, it's this is what's this is what it looks like in practice. Yeah, and I, I guess what I'm hoping is like. 
people will see this. There's been a lot of talk about mutual aid ne networks this year, this past 365 days. I mean, it came up a lot during, um, I think, because of the pandemic and then, like, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, you know, where communities felt like they couldn't get any justice um, or they couldn't get resources, like all this stuff about um, mutual aid networks came up. And I don't know, Americans are great at rebranding. If, 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 if that's all it took to like get like socialized medicine, call it like mutual aid network, I'm all for it. I mean, yeah, like if there's a way that we could make that work, like I, I really feel like the way our politics are defined in this country are not defined by the people. It's defined by the people that we elect to supposedly lead us. You know, they're the ones that sort of make the narrative instead of all these polls that come out that show sort of how the country wants things to go in a different direction. And it's just like, well, it's, they just ignore it. You know, I yeah. think a lot of people would be, I think the, the country would be a lot different if our leaders actually listened to the the vast majority of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think people like Ted Cruz get to dictate talking points a lot. Speaking, speaking of Ted Cruz, I wonder how many, Tecate Light's old teddy boy had when he was down in Cancun, you know, soaking it up with his family. Probably mainlining them while he was panicking about getting back in time. Uh, yeah. Ted Cruz is this, uh, you know, these are the kind of people who define like the talking points. And it's so hypocritical. Like, this is the guy who's like talking about rolling up his, rolling up his, shirt sleeves but you know what does he do when the going gets tough he goes off to, to cancun i like i don't think this guy has ever like like this is the kind of guy who like when the escalade check engine light comes on he just drives the other escalade for a little while while the, the check <laughs> engine escalade is in the shop like and, and this is the you know that's what they teach you at yale law school that's smart home economics um so mm -hmm. out of touch and so unfair that these are the people who get to you know define you know, what socialism is and what it isn't. Not the kind of guy you want to have a couple of beers with, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I don't think he would drink beer with anybody, to be honest. I did find, so when I made this, I, I, the, I the first thing I thought of when I was like writing this script was Tecate Lights. And I'm on Tecate Lights because I came across them in the grocery store the other day and they're like the ultimate lawnmower beer. They're like 3.9%. 3 so you can have like infinity of them and and still talk a little bit of sense at the end of the day not like those you know hazy ipas that like just knock you out after one and a half but um <laughs> but but i looked it up i was like what kind of beer would ted cruz like and you know he I, I guess he he told somebody back in 2012 that he likes guinness i mean fine i won't hate him on that because guinness is good for the most part but like i don't I don't buy Guinness. I don't really know people who buy Guinness anymore. It's yeah, I, mean, I don't want to be like, I don't want to like do like a sweeping, like put down on people who like Guinness because, you know, you get to like what you like. But I mean, yeah. it's kind of like, like a milkshake, you know, it's not yeah. like a beer, it's like a milkshake. It's nice and smooth. Yeah. I would not picture him liking Guinness. No. Wow. Maybe he said it because... He was trying to gain some political advantage. I don't know if any words come out of that guy's mouth without him trying to gain some kind of political advantage. Yeah. Advantage. Um, oh, and Rush Limbaugh died. <laughs> and then and then Jello Biafra 
of the Dead Kennedys and San Francisco uh, Denizen, a San Francisco Denizen, released a song to commemorate the occasion. You can hear that on our website under the music tab. Um, also, in local news, uh, we had some Ferris wheel drama. You familiar with the observation wheel in Golden Gate Park, Kevin? Yeah, I haven't ever seen it running, of course. But um, yeah, I've seen it out there. I went out there a couple times and have seen it just, you know, looming. <laughs> <laughs> glowing apparently they shut down the bright white led lights a while back because it was just like deemed to be not good for wildlife and blinding mm-hmm. local residents well so locals and environmentalists have had enough of the thing um some locals and most environmentalists i guess uh, they say that it's ugly it disturbs the wildlife in the park those in favor of the wheel say it's provided a much-needed diversion over the course of the past year of pandemic and that it's helped stimulate the local economy. It's an interesting debate, I guess, in that both sides are pointing to the same things. Environmentalists say it disrupts the natural beauty of Golden Gate Park. Proponents say it helps people take in the natural beauty of Golden Gate Park. Everyone seems to be jumping on this bandwagon. Like, I was getting um, emails from various people today, like, I guess trying to get my eyeballs looking at the email and opening it up. Cause like, it was just like Ferris wheel, Ferris wheel, Ferris wheel. It's, it's a hot topic right now. Ugh, yeah. I mean, anything that's distracting from the school's reopening debate and vaccinations is going to be a hot topic right now. Anything that <laughs> yes. can distract from those two things. Let's talk about something. Let's talk about something dumb and mostly inconsequential. So we don't have to actually deal, deal with the real. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you can read about that on our website as well under the news tab. Okay, we all caught up. Um, I'm sure there's a million things we didn't touch upon, like you said, Kevin, schools, reopening, vaccines. Um, but I think that's because, uh, you know, we all need a break sometimes, and sometimes I just need to trash Ted Cruz with you. So, thank you. Coming up on the podcast, we have Veronica Irwin, who talks about the benefits of low-dose THC cannabis products with the co-founder of a brand called Artet, which produces a cannabis beverage infused with 2.5 milligrams of THC. You know, throwback to what I mentioned earlier, it's kind of like Tecate Light, the lawnmower beer of weed bevies. Um, <laughs> like a big old 8% hazy IPA, am I right? Anyway, um, <laughs> stay tuned. We'll be right back. for SF Weekly. This week, I'm here with Max Fowler of the cannabis beverage company Artet. Now, if you've been to a well-stocked dispensary lately, you may have noticed that there are more and more beverage options to choose from. New technology has hit the market that makes beverages much easier to infuse than they were before, and cannabis operators have jumped on it. There's cannabis-infused seltzers, wine, soda, and in the case of Artet, even aperitifs. I'm a big fan of drinkables because they tend to kick in a lot faster. Unlike most edibles where you don't feel the effects for up to an hour after, drinks, 
generally, not all, but generally, get you high as you drink them. So like alcohol, you can kind of monitor your dose as you consume. Me and Max are going to talk a little bit about how he, his brother, and his cousin came up with their idea, as well as some topics like bioavailability and terpenes that impact how an edible hits. If you're a low-dose consumer or someone that doesn't understand why edibles get you super stoned and others don't work at all, this is the perfect conversation for you. So without further ado, Max, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to have this conversation. I, I think it's one that um, is starting to be had more in the space and one that is super important. Well, I'm glad to have you here. So just to start, tell me a little bit about the philosophy behind Artet. The philosophy behind Artet is that it's a family brand, um, admittedly a family that is much more steeped in booze and alcohol than in cannabis. Um, and for me, my brother, my cousin, uh, my co-founders, as you mentioned, um, cannabis has always been something that we gravitated to more. And specifically, even in social settings and recreational settings that are typically owned by alcohol. Um, so we started with a belief that if we could create a consistent, reliable cannabis drinking experience, we could bring the plant to more people and more settings and contexts. Um, so, and, and we also believe that that can, can bridge some of the perception gaps between our generation and older generations who only uh, existed in a world of, of cannabis prohibition. Um, so one of those fundamental beliefs was that we saw the person who had a well-stocked bar cart, um, all the kind of mixology gadgets and tools, and the person who had the kind of humidifier box, um, admittedly, the latter category is more myself, um, with all their different strains and all their different rolling um, you know, gadgets and materials. Um, and, and we saw those two rituals and behaviors as having a lot more in common than otherwise, um, but due to the kind of regulatory environment, um, have had to exist in such kind of polarized contexts. Um, so with Artet, we really saw an opportunity to bring those worlds together, um, bring cannabis and mixology closer together, and really build a world where um, a delicious, robust, super flavorful drink doesn't need to start with alcohol. Um, and for us, a key kind of and on top of that is and deliver a psychoactive experience. I love it. I personally was very into trying to make my own cannabis cocktails before I ever tried Artet. I would get those little like cannabis infused syrups and try to mix it with seltzer water and maybe put a little garnish on there. And Artet makes that all look so amateur. For for the listeners, it's essentially like a like a liqueur of sorts. The thing that seems most comparable to me would be um, like an Aperol that you make like an Aperol spritz with. It's this very florally kind of beverage that you can mix in. And then they also make pre-mixed little canned cocktails as well when you're when you're too lazy to mix a drink yourself or, or out of the tonic water or anything like that. Um, and something that's really interesting to me about their drinks as well is that they're only 2.5 milligrams per serving. And then the pre-canned um, cocktails are like five milligrams. Why low dose? We thought about it much more in terms of the context of the experience we're trying to cultivate, not just the amount of THC. Um, I think something that is thrown around in the edible drinkable space, which is a little bit of like a corny kind of like one-liner, but something that helps to, to kind of have this conversation is that you can't cheers an edible. Um, and like, while I will say that I have definitely cheers some gummies or, or like little chocolate squares in the past, <laughs> beverage, beverages are 
truly the kind of like universal social format. Um, and in that context, we really feel that um, edibles are like a private experience. I consume edibles daily, weekly, whatever it is. And most of that edible consumption is me, my pillow, my favorite book, my favorite documentary. Um, and I'm, and I'm using something to create a very private, oftentimes like intimate experience with just myself, um, or, you know, one other person for our tet, um, and this kind of drinkable format, we feel that, uh, the bioavailability that the Vertoso emulsions allow that a kind of 2.5 in the context of our flagship and a five to five dose in the context of our ready to drink cans are one, something that is an easy on-ramp to someone who isn't super comfortable with the other consumption formats. But two um, is something that, you know, I can, I can sip with my grandmother who isn't a cannabis, you know, user the way I am but I can pour a double and I can, and then I can kind of build from there. And it, and it's a lot more about the, um, the kind of experience than it is about like talking about what is your tolerance. And I think some of the, the kind of where this conversation is going to go around bioavailability is, is really where, uh, the kind of crux of this lies because five milligrams in a drink format is totally different than five milligrams in an edible format. Totally. And, and let's talk about that a little bit more. I wrote an article called You're Buying Your Weed Wrong that some listeners might have read for SF Weekly a couple weeks ago. And in it, I talked a little bit about bioavailability, as well as things like terpenes and other cannabinoids that should all be considered when you purchase an edible product in addition to THC. So can you explain a little bit about that infusion method that you've partnered with Vertosa on? Totally. Yeah. Um, so the way I think about bioavailability is first, how much of the THC or the other cannabinoid uh, material is absorbed into the body. And secondly, how quickly that happens. So in order to create a kind of social beverage experience that we keep kind of circling back on, we had to get those onset times to a place that are much more like uh, alcohol than they are the traditional, again, kind of like a gimmicky joke, like, you know, this edible isn't 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 hidden and then you kind of like two hours later you're like you know why did i challenge the edible bevs do truly hit different and i think um the the way i think about that is vertosa is able to break the cannabinoid ingredients and the molecules down so small that most of them are absorbed orally um so therefore it is a much more bioavailable cannabis emulsion than um kind of otherwise and what that results in is, um, you know, faster onset, but also a kind of smoother off ramp, which is to say that the the kind of after groggy effect that um, that sometimes people note with edibles, if, if they go to bed and take a, a kind of high dose edible before bed, you sometimes have that kind of like after high hangover, and the Vertulsa emulsions are um, really really good. In, in kind of combating that. Um, and then one thing that I want to keep emphasizing in this conversation with bioavailability is that THC is one piece of the puzzle. The other cannabinoids are another piece of the puzzle. The terpene profile is a third piece of the puzzle that are all contributing to the feeling. But this like other piece of the puzzle is that our bodies are all different. So something that's marketed to me 
as a kind of sativa uplifter. If I get home and that kind of puts me on my couch and has me feeling a bit sedated, like I should trust my body. So when you when you talk about terpenes, there is uh, amounts of small amounts of time in our drinks, which is known to have myrcene. Um, and one kind of anecdote about myrcene is like myrcene is really known for its presence in mangoes. Um, and and another kind of like con- common cannabis thing is that if you if you down a mango right before you you burn one or or kind of consume some cannabis, that your high will not only be more intense but longer. And personally, I have tried the mango, you know, kind of thing, and it and it definitely works. It's it's kind of I'll I'll just tie a bow on that anecdote to say that we we pour uh, a lot of times non-medicated versions of our beverages in dispensaries to kind of just showcase how to use it, what it's tasting like, what we're about, you know, just give the consumer some more of those um kind of education pieces and you know the amount of time somebody thinks they're getting a buzz or thinks they're getting a kind of stoned or something off of the drink and it's like no i promise you this is our beverage without the thc ingredient but i'm I, you know there is a chance that these other kind of botanical ingredients are delivering some kind of feeling for your kind of body and the terpenes all these different floral notes and fruity notes like make the drink delicious too can't ignore that um, but you are giving away my trick from when I was a bud tender, I have to say. Uh, when I was a bud tender, there was a little market about a block away that sold mango lassies, like homemade mango lassies. And we all used to chug them on our lunch breaks because we would also all, you know, medicate on our lunch break. And that was that was everybody's dirty little secret, <laughs> how to make the high last. What are your own consumption habits like? And what would your tips be for consumers that might be interested in this product but are still a little overwhelmed by all these options how should they go about deciphering between products at the dispensary and and figuring out what to buy so personally i tend to kind of bucket my consumption into different uh use cases i would say like a little bit on my background like you know kind of grew up on spliffs and you know new yorker so it wasn't you know, it wasn't thinking about the taste of a flower. It wasn't really tasting about thinking about all these things now that I've kind of become obsessed mm-hmm. with. So now fast forward to being out here living in, in the Bay Area, I, I, it's, it's sacrilegious to kind of put a little tobacco on top of my strain. So I'm, I'm definitely still a smoker. I would say my other consumption buckets are outside of like smoking flour and, um, you know, dabbing dabbing concentrates is I've become a big advocate and personal user of uh, kind of like high dose uh, edibles for exercise and for like endurance exercise. So I, I'm a, you know, I, I do some distance running and cycling, especially in the pandemic where like my weekends aren't spent, uh, you know, drinking pints in, in bars. Um, so I tend to find that yeah. cannabis is a super effective supplement, whatever kind of way you want to frame it. It's, it's in, super helpful for me in endurance uh, exercise. And, and I like, if I'm doing a run or a bike, I will like make sure I have, whether it's an extract on me that I can like consume orally, like a full spectrum oil, or a kind of like extract tablet, things like that. Some of these kind of like higher dose edibles um, yeah. for, for that exercise bucket. And then I would say there's the kind of like, uh, you know, 
kicking it in the in the apartment. Like I've been I've been making my way through the Adam Curtis documentaries. Going into another bucket is kind of like the recreation social bucket, and for that I'm leaning on beverages. I'm looking at our my own beverages, but I kind of also do what you were mentioning earlier in our conversation, which is like buying a a, a, a tincture that I know is going to be delicious. Buying you know different uh, beverages and mixing them with our tet. I'm, I've also become a, a little bit of a mezcal fan during quarantine, so I, I tend to on Friday, do an Artet and Mezcal with a little bit of, uh, you know, soda or, or even just the two of them by themselves is, is a soup, one of my favorite kind of like Friday afternoon drinks. I appreciate you asking this because I do think there is still stigma about uh, opening up and being honest about consumption. Like I would feel embarrassed to tell some people that I can consume like 300 milligrams of THC. And I, and I know people who would feel embarrassed to say that they, that they, you know, can only consume two milligrams of THC. So it goes both ways where like, there is kind of some shame and embarrassment on both sides of consumption. And I think like the more that people are open to just trying things and seeing what works with their body, I think the more, you know, we can kind of come out of our own little cannabis closets and, 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 and do this in a little bit, uh, kind of more intentional and, and more, uh, just a better way. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I can down a hundred milligrams or sometimes like if I have other responsibilities to take care of after work, but just need a little like transition, I'll I'll grab an Artet. So it's good to keep things, a lot of different products in your arsenal so that you have the right product for you at the right time. And what really excites me also because you know beverage is where we've stuck our kind of flag is leaning into whole plant flavors. So like you mentioned the fact that our tet has this kind of floral, spicy, big flavor where we're kind of mm-hmm. to, to kind of tease what's on the horizon and, and where we're heading. It's like we're doing R and D in in how to instead of I would say even lean more into those kind of plant terpenes and also cannabinoid flavors. So getting consumers comfortable with the way these products make you feel, but also the way they taste and and not uh, masking those flavors, but actually leaning into them and saying, this is what makes, you know, these drinks beautiful. And this, this is kind of how you can go from that true, you know, plant to bottle type of story. Um, and, and that's where, what really excites me in terms of like what we're, where we're heading. Well, that's exciting. I will definitely be keeping an eye out. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. I really appreciate you having this conversation with me and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you so much and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Cheers, Veronica. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. My inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Mike Huguenor is our audio engineer. Veronica Irwin produced her own segment this week. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.